Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedekes. If you have not yet subscribed to the Think Podcast on your favorite podcast catcher app, go ahead and do that simply by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. And while you're there, you can browse our back catalog of videos and or of, of audio. There's also video on there and uh, plenty of information. There's video in the video section, audio in the audio section. And we've got dozens and dozens of articles as well that will help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. So, um, Welcome. Today, we are doing something a little different, something that I, I think is going to be a lot of fun. I have something to to talk about. I have a topic locked and loaded, ready to go. But I want to give you all an opportunity, anyone watching, an opportunity to ask theological or uh, worldview or evangelism or apologetics questions that have been burning a hole in your head, and uh, I will do my best to answer them. I can't promise that I will answer them perfectly, but maybe I can point you in the right direction, or you know, I might be able to provide a really good answer. So if you have a question that you want an answer to, um, all you need to do is just drop a comment or a question right there in the comment section, and I'll respond to it. Um, and let me go ahead and put up a banner to that effect. And uh, just, you know what, if you can see me, hear me right now, please um, leave a comment in the comment section just saying, hey, I hear you, I see you, you know, loud and clear. And uh, that just helps me know that the mic is working and the camera's working and everything else. All right. All right, so we don't have any questions in so far. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up my prepared talk here. And, you know, I I do think that this is a really interesting question. And I wanted to address it. It's not one that I've addressed on the Think Podcast so far, but it's it's something that I think would be... um, of interest to theology nerds like myself, as well as um, students of history and culture. And, um, oh, good, James. Uh, Thank you. Yes, good. I'm glad that you're watching. Nice to know a fellow NCT guy is watching. If you don't know what NCT is, that stands for New Covenant Theology. Um, And if you don't know what that is, leave a question. We're doing an Ask Me Anything. Now, quick update. I am refreshing the curated course library on the think.institute website. Uh, you can go there to get courses and access uh, resources and tools that we've developed here at the Institute. 
Um, some of them are, most of them are original. There is one that is a modified course. That's, um, that's our co-journers course, but that comes from church movements, which is the umbrella organization of the think podcast, the think Institute. I have five courses up right now, and I plan to have many more up soon. So again, if you want to, um, if you want to check that out, let me see if I can, if I can show that to you. All right. I'm trying all kinds of new things here today. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up the course library. See if you can see it. Okay. Looks like, looks like it's up there. All right. So you can see here, this is the, this is the course library on the think Institute website up at the top there, it says browse our course library. These are resources to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message and equip others to do the same. What would you like to learn? Uh, the courses that I have up there right now are Think the Biblical Worldview, and that'll help you learn what a worldview is and how the Bible answers life's seven most important questions. Those are uh, questions that we've come up with here at the Institute that we think Every worldview needs to answer, and actually every worldview does answer, for better or for worse. Then we have our Think Apologetics course, which will help you learn how to defend the Christian message in a biblical way. Again, you can get all of these simply by going to thethink.institute and then click on Get Courses, or you can just do slash Courses Library. Then we've got Think Cojourners. Now, this is an, a, a course that is adapted by the Cojourners course from Crew Church Movements. And it'll help you learn how to lead others to Christ by joining them on their spiritual journey. It is an evangelism curriculum. It's one that I've taught at uh, at churches around Chicago. And it is very, very good, very practical. I think it's an excellent course, but we've got the, the there's a PowerPoint that was adapted by yours truly, uh, written by yours truly and adapted there are um, slides and um, a slide handout, and there's two sessions. That's originally an eight-week, eight-session course. I've gotten down to two sessions to make it a little easier to uh, to teach and a little bit more um, uh, palatable for those who can't attend a longer-form class. Then we've got two interesting classes that are actually geared at Muslim Muslim high school students. The first one is, What Do Christians Believe? This is a single seminar course to give Muslim high school students an introduction to Christianity as a story, a religion, and a relationship. I worked with a missionary friend of mine who's getting ready to go to Lebanon, and he and I um, strategized on this one, but there's special emphasis given to the prophetic witness pointing towards Jesus, which if you know anything about Islam, the witness of the prophets is very, very important to them. Um, and then the final course that is up there right now is called An Introduction to Christian Faith and Practice. Again, this is another single seminar course. It's an overview of Christianity, also aimed at Muslim high school students. And what this does is this focuses more on the system. It's a systematic treatment of Christianity in terms of what we believe, what are our basic orthodox beliefs, and some of our most common practices. And uh, this also comes with um, 
you know, as I'm looking at it, I see something I need to tweak on there right now. Uh, but I'll have to work on that later. So if you're interested in getting educated, uh, if you're interested in growing in your own biblical worldview or your ability to articulate it, share, defend, look, we all have more time on our hands right now. What I want to do is I want to provide resources for members of the local church, um, Christians, to to grow, to grow in their faith, to grow in their ability to um, explain, share, and defend the Christian message. So enough about that. Let's talk now about the question at hand. Now, again, as I'm talking, if you have another question that you want me to address, please leave it in the comment section, and I will do my best to answer it. Now, the question at hand is, why do so many Gentiles worship the Jewish God? Did you ever think about that? It's an interesting thing, right? Why do so many Gentiles worship the God who has historically been known as the God of Israel? Now, religion is historically an ethno-cultural thing. Each people group throughout history would have their own deities. So historically, we think about like the Egyptian gods or the Greek gods or the Roman gods who were an adaptation of the Greek gods. But when Rome took hegemony, they adapted the gods for their own um, political and, and ethnic uh, identity. Or there's, of course, the Norse gods. The most popular today, of course, would be uh, Thor, you know, made popular by the Marvel movies. But, you know, these were real gods that people believed in. Not that they were real gods, but they were, it was a real religion. We look in the Bible, and we see how each of the different people groups had their own deities. So the Babylonians had their gods, the Hittites had their gods, the Canaanites and the Jebusites, they all had their own gods that they worshipped. And even today, we think about the gods worshipped, for example, in the Hindu religion as being primarily worshipped by Indians. So when it comes to Christianity then, to which ethnicity does Christianity belong? Well, the answer is that it doesn't belong to any. So when you look at history, there have been periods where the church has thrived in different regions of the world, different ethnicities. Um, actually, there's a really cool video out there that um, actually traces the progression of Christianity from Jerusalem out into the first century, second century, third, fourth, etc., into the Dark Ages, in the age of Re the Reformation. And you can actually watch where the majority of Christians lived throughout history. And there are certainly times when the majority of Christians have lived, for example, in Europe, that was around the time of the Reformation, or uh, in the Middle East, or actually today, the, the if you were to put a pin in your map or on your globe as to where the center, the the geographical center of Christianity is in terms of population, it's moving right now south and east. And the reason for that is because there are so many Christians in China and in what's known as the global south. So what ethnicity owns Christianity? Well, there isn't one. And just a quick disclaimer, I wasn't trying to claim earlier that, you know, all Hindus are Indian or something like that. Only using that as an illustration to show that we 
are not entirely wrong in thinking of religion, historically speaking, as being an ethnic thing. And so even today, sometimes you will hear people say, oh, um, Christianity, that's a white man's religion. Well, that's ridiculous. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity is, is not uh, predominated by any particular religion, at least not theologically speaking. And, and even if it has been historically at different points in history, that has nothing to do with its origins. And actually, its origins come from not only the Middle East, but they come from Israel. Um, starting in the region around Jerusalem and Galilee and spreading out from there. So how is it today that the God of the Jewish people, historically known, biblically known as Yahweh, how is it that Yahweh, the great I Am, the God of the Israelites, is today worshipped by billions of non-Jews, billions of Gentiles. Today, we just celebrated Easter. And the reason why Easter was different this year is because it was, because it is the first Easter that any of us can remember where we've been on lockdown, on quarantine. But it was this was making headlines all over the world because there are Christians all over the world. Not only there isn't one particular ethnicity that is primarily the Christian church. That's poorly worded, but I think you get it. So I was also thinking about this issue this morning in my Bible reading. Um, in, in my Bible, I was reading in Exodus chapter 29, and uh, I actually tweeted this out. Um, so here's what I tweeted this morning. Uh, I'm back on social media, so I'm tweeting again. In the OT, the Old Testament, blood was sprinkled on the Israelites, Exodus 24, 8, and the priests, Exodus 29, 21, to consecrate them, to make them holy, and to dedicate them for service. That's what consecrate means. Hundreds of years later, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would sprinkle many nations, Isaiah 52, 15. The church is God's holy people, dedicated by blood for God's purposes. Okay, that was my tweet, and it, it's true. The church is comprised today of people from all over the world, all different kinds of ethnicities and nations, and we all worship the God of the Hebrews. It's really fascinating when you think about it. It is, isn't it? Well, I wrote a blog post on this question a while back. I also posted this answer on the website Quora, and I wanted to share it with you. So, where did all these Gentiles come from? Well, if you're like me, you are not Jewish. Um, now, my in-laws are Jewish. My wife is half Jewish and grew up with uh, many of the Jewish holidays. Actually, today, Passover is still her favorite holiday because of what it signifies. Actually, as a Christian, it signifies uh, a lot theologically. But if you're not Jewish, you are a Gentile. Those are the only two options. Biblically speaking, you're either Jew or Gentile. But whether you're Jewish or Gentile, maybe you at one point have stopped to think about the fact that the, the vast majority of Christians are Gentiles who worship a man that they believe to be the Jewish Messiah. Okay, did you ever stop to think about that? The, the Jesus that we worship, we claim is the Jewish Messiah. 
we, he's not a separate Messiah for Gentiles or something like that. He's the Jewish Messiah. Why is that? Well, in the Old Testament or the Tanakh, which uh, the Tanakh means it, it's a it's an uh, it's a uh, a uh, acronym, T N K, which stands for Torah, which is the first five books, Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which means the writings, and that that would be you know like Psalms, Proverbs, the wisdom literature, and some other books as well. So the Tanakh was written by Jewish people for Jewish people, and about the God who specifically chose the nation of Israel for his people. Yahweh, the Lord, was indeed the God of Israel. Gentiles, meanwhile, historically worshipped pagan deities, and some of these are the ones that I mentioned earlier. There's Baal, Asherah, Ra, Zeus, Jupiter, Thor, etc., etc., etc. Yet, today, the majority of the descendants of those pagan God-worshipping Gentiles from ages past, they worship the God of Israel. So why is the switch? How did the switch happen? Why are there so many Gentiles worshiping the God of Israel? Well, the answer today is going to come from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. So let's read that before we go on. So Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30 reads like this. He came to Nazareth, that's talking about Jesus, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach, the, to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, quick pause here. In the old days, in the synagogues, the preacher would stand for the reading of scripture and then he would sit down and the rest of the congregation would remain standing while the preacher preached. So it's kind of like me right now, I'm sitting in this, this office chair and uh, if there were an audience around me uh, and this were a synagogue, they'd be standing up listening while I was teaching. Of course, that's the opposite of the way we do it in church today where the congregation sits and the preacher stands up. So that's why Jesus sits down. I used to think of this as sort of like a mic drop moment. You know, Jesus says, this has been fulfilled today. And then he sits down as if to say, you know, so there. But in reality, what he's doing is he's he's now going to be expounding and preaching on the passage. That's why it says he began by saying to them. In other words, he began his exposition, his sermon by saying to them. And he said, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. So now we continue with verse 22. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've 
heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy. And yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. All right, so sometimes, you know, I've gotten bad feedback on my sermons before, but, you know, nothing nothing like this. Now, let's break down what's happening here. Jesus has returned to his hometown of Nazareth. Prior to this, he's been traveling around Galilee, preaching in the synagogues. He had withstood the temptation of Satan, and now he has begun his public ministry. Jesus preaches to the Nazarenes who've gathered in the synagogue. So the synagogue, again, is sort of like a a church, but also kind of like a Jewish community center, especially in those areas where uh, there wasn't easy access to Jerusalem to go back to the temple. And Jesus begins his sermon by reading from an ancient prophecy from the prophet Isaiah about the Lord's servant. Now, the Lord's servant is another way of speaking about the Messiah, the promised priest, prophet, king, leader who is going to come. And basically, Jesus says that he is the Lord's servant, and he has come to bring God's favor to the poor in spirit, to the blind, and to the captives. Now, at first, the people marvel. They compliment him. They speak very well of him. But they still maintain a sense of indifference and skepticism. You can see it when they say, is this not Joseph's son? See, they were willing to call him a good teacher, but they knew him. They grew up with him. He was like them. You know, there was nothing too special about him. As a matter of fact, Nazareth was no great shakes. Nazareth was kind of lower class, blue-collar community. A lot of stonemasons lived up in that region. You know, blue-collar guys. And some of the elites down by Jerusalem, they actually looked down on Nazareth. And the Nazarenes, they didn't think of themselves as anything too special either. So when you've got Jesus preaching these these nice-sounding words, that's all well and good, but to say that he's the Lord's servant, this guy from Nazareth, the, you know, uh, Joseph's son, Joseph, many people think of him as a carpenter. Probably he was a stonemason. You know, this guy's son, come on, get serious. So Jesus reads the situation and he says, doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself, doctor, heal yourself. We still use that same expression today. Jesus then tells them that no prophet is ever accepted by the people from his hometown. And he predicts that they will demand that he do miracles. In other words, he knows they're going to say, oh, you think you're so special? All right, prove it to us, big shot. Well, Jesus then changes the tone of his sermon. Charles Spurgeon, 
in his sermon about this passage points out that Jesus does not just want to wow them, he wants to move them. Jesus has come to save. And right now, these people do not believe that Jesus is the Savior. They think that because Jesus grew up in their midst, he owes them some proof that he really is the Messiah. So what Jesus says next is amazing then. Jesus gives the Nazarene people a history lesson. And what he does is he calls forth two of ancient uh, ancient Israel's prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who performed miracle for people in desperate times of need. Uh, Jesus points out that although there were plenty of Israelis, Israelites who had been in need, Elijah and Elisha didn't help any of the Israelites. Instead, they helped the Gentiles. So what is Jesus saying when he says this? Well, this is the lesson. When it comes to God, God is going to save whomever he chooses, period. No one people could claim the right to special favor from God simply because of their genes, simply because of their ethnicity. This is the theme that is echoed throughout Scripture. The people that God chooses are often the ones everybody would least expect. So after Jesus' little history lesson, the Nazarenes show their true colors by becoming enraged. So much so, in fact, that they mob Jesus, they force him out of the synagogue, and they bring him to the edge of a cliff to try to throw him off. So now these folks are transforming from, you know, nice religious folks to would-be murderers. So much for their being worthy of special favor from God. See, what they've done is they've just proven Jesus right. This passage teaches that no one is born worthy of special favor from God. The people that we may tend to think ought to be the ultimate insiders with God are often the ones who miss him the most. So why are there so many Gentiles in the church today? Why are there so many non-Israelites worshiping the God of Israel? Now, quick sidebar, that's not to say that there are no Jewish people worshiping Jesus, worshiping Yeshua, the Messiah. As a matter of fact, my in-laws, who I mentioned earlier, are Jewish, not only worship Jesus, but my father-in-law teaches Gentiles and Jewish people the significance of the Jewish festivals and how they point to the Messiah, how they point to Jesus. So, so today, there are countless Jewish people who recognize that their Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, is Yeshua. But today, the vast majority of believers are Gentiles. How did that come to be? Well, one thing that we can't say is we definitely can't say it's because Gentiles are somehow more worthy than Jewish people. Okay, in light of this passage that we just read, For anyone to claim favored status with God based on their race or ethnicity, I mean, that would be absurd. Every last one of us is a sinner, and we're separated from God because of our sin. The Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one, in Romans 3.10, and Jews and Gentiles are alike all under under sin, Romans 3.9. So, we're all under sin, Jews and Gentiles alike, how then could we claim to earn God's love 
in and of ourselves. No, it, it cannot be because of our ethnicity or the fact that we're not Jewish or the fact that we are Jewish. It has to be simply because of God's grace. See, grace is by definition an unmerited gift. God chooses those who don't deserve God. God chooses those who don't des deserve to be chosen. God chooses outsiders. He does not show favoritism. He picks the unworthy. He saves the unrighteous. This is go really good news. This is really good news for Gentiles like me. My ancestors were worshiping, you know, painting themselves blue and uh, bowing down before trees and bushes. I think Matt Chandler makes that point. You know, our ancestors were vile pagans, you know, human sacrifices in our historical past, uh, bowing down before animistic spirits is in our ancestral past. And yet today, if you're a Christian and you're a Gentile, somewhere along the line, that cycle was broken. And now you are worshiping the God of Israel. That is an incredible thing. And it's a free gift. Salvation, rescue from sin, both the historical patterns of sin that are our heritage by virtue of our genetics, as well as our own individual patterns and histories of sin. Uh, those histories are broken and undone by God's grace, and that is an opportunity that is open to anyone because it's a free gift and it's given to whoever believes in Jesus as Savior and as Lord. You know, the Bible says that whoever receives Jesus, whoever believes in his name, God gives the right to become children of God. So whatever, whoever your dad or great-grandma or great-grandpa or whatever ancestral line you come from, you can be released from their lineage of sin and brought into the family of God simply by repenting and receiving Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, by believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for you. And who makes that decision? Well, salvation is a gift, and it's a gift from the God who freely chooses. So everyone God has chosen will make that decision. And if you make that decision, that means God has chosen you. Now, you don't know whether you've been chosen, and that's why we say that the the offer is up to anyone, whether you're Jew, Gentile, or anything else. There shouldn't be anything that would keep you from coming to Jesus with open hands and saying, Jesus, I trust in you. I'm sorry for my sins. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I receive you into my life. How else do you explain over 2 billion Gentiles, 2 billion Gentiles, former pagans pledging their allegiance to the Jewish Savior? Many of these believers make the decision to follow Jesus in the midst of cultures that are still to this day vehemently anti-Christian. I mentioned China earlier. The, the Chinese government is very anti-Christian. I mentioned Iran, or I didn't mention Iran, but um, Iran is a Muslim nation, and yet it's the home of the fastest growing church in the world today. See, that kind of faith, the kind that causes people to reject their culture and their upbringing, often in the face of severe persecution, that faith is miraculous. There are no bragging rights available to Christians. We are merely the ones who recognize 
our utter abject lostness apart from God and our urgent need of a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. Whether you're Jewish or whether you're a Gentile, you can trust in Jesus today. So ask yourself that question. Is is that something that you understand and is that something you are ready to do today? I certainly hope that it is. So I hope that answers the the question that I came prepared for. Uh, The next question I want to answer and address here is Romans 2. Okay, this is from James Whitworth. Uh, James, thanks for your question. Is Romans 2.14 speaking of Gentile believers or unbelievers? Mm, Good question. Let's find out. So I'm getting out my trusty C.H. Spurgeon study Bible. This is a CSB Bible, uh, Christian Standard Bible. My current favorite translation, although I just heard that John MacArthur is commissioning a new version of the Bible, which is going to be a revised version of the NASB uh, called the Legacy Standard Bible. So that that is going to be good when that comes out. Uh, Romans 2.14. Now, this is cool because I've actually been working on memorizing Romans 1 and 2. And... Okay. Let's read the passage in context and find out if the Apostle Paul is talking about Gentile believers or if he's speaking about unbelievers and why. So let's go... So in context, the first 14 verses have been speaking about how it is totally inappropriate for anyone to judge others when they themselves are doing the very same things that they're accusing those that they judge of doing. And uh, in, in a passage that centers on God's righteous judgment, the Apostle Paul says, and this is now beginning in verse 12, he says, all who sin without the law will also perish without the law and I'm reading this, I'm not saying it from memory, partially because I'm memorizing it in the ESV. Also, it's been a while since I reviewed, but I'm reading from the CSB. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Verse 13. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So, now here's verse 14. When Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law, now this is verse 15, is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have done, what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Okay, what is this talking about? So here you've got a passage that is that is speaking about how God's standard is absolute, utter perfection. It's not those who hear the law, but those who do it, those who keep the law. You know, in his epistle, James says that if you are guilty of breaking the law in one part, you're guilty of breaking the entire thing. The law is presented, the, the law of Moses is presented uh, not as a mosaic, even though it's called the Mosaic Law, but really as totally unrelated. Sorry, theology joke. It was not good. Uh, as a uh, a plate, 
of glass, a sheet of glass, where if you crack it in one point, you've cracked the entire thing, you've shattered the entire thing. And so um, now when he, when he turns and he talks about Gentiles, and what he's saying is there are times when Gentiles, who, according to what Paul says here about them, he says they do not by nature have the law. They do sometimes by nature what the law demands. Now, is he talking about Gentiles, uh, Gentile believers or Gentile unbelievers? Uh, it seems to me that he's speaking about Gentile unbelievers. The reason why is because they don't have the law. Now, at this point, if they were Gentile believers, they would have been schooled in the Hebrew scriptures, or at the very least, they would have been taught about the prophetic witness leading up to, uh, to Jesus. As an example of that, in 2 Timothy, uh, Timothy, who is, um, he is a Christian, he has a believing mom and grandmother. He's half Jewish, half Gentile, but he has been taught the Hebrew scriptures. And at this point, there were really no New Testament scriptures to speak of. Uh, there were some, but they were still being written. So um, when, when Paul is talking about Gentiles here, it seems like he's talking about those Gentiles throughout history who, who to whom the law did not come. He he's speaking about those those Gentiles who would have been living during the time when the the law had been given to Israel, but it had not been given, you know, for example, to the Greeks or the Medo Persians. Okay, and yet you have all these Gentiles who, although they did not receive the law from Moses, obviously Moses gave the law to the Israelites. Nevertheless, they they act oftentimes in such a way, and even they come up with moral codes that are very much in accordance with what the law requires. Now, um, Paul elsewhere says that the 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 summer he says that the uh, the I, I want I mean I'm going to maybe misquote this, but he says that the summary of the law is is summarized in, in love your neighbor as yourself. All right, so I have to think that when Paul's talking about the work of the law here, he's he's referring to the fact that Gentiles, who, although they did not have the law of Moses, still recognize the importance of treating others with kindness and charity. What they're doing there is these Gentiles are showing, they're demonstrating that what the law requires, not the explicit law, not the, not the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments per se, but the work of the law, is written on their hearts, on their consciences. In fact, Paul even goes on to say, their consciences confirm this and their competing thoughts either accuse or excuse them. What Paul's referring to here is the universal moral impulse that demands human beings love their neighbor and treat their neighbor kindly. This is, this is reflected, we see this even today. Um, when I get in debates, with atheists, for example, and I'll say something like, without God, morality is subjective, or it's impossible to have an objective universal standard of morality without first presupposing God. What they will say is, are, are you saying that atheists can't be good or, or do good? Matter of fact, my first atheist, uh, my first debate with atheist Ethan Michael was on that very subject. Can you be good without God? And the point that he wanted to make was that atheists can, you know, be good and, and do good without God. 
I would never say an atheist can be good without God, but I can certainly say that they can do good works. Um, you know, donating masks to a hospital or something like that. Um, I have no idea if Bill Gates is, I don't believe, I don't think he's a believer. I don't know that he's an atheist, but I don't think he's a believer, but you know, say what you will about the man. He does a lot of good through his charitable organization. I'm not saying everything he does is good. Okay. Get off my back, but you, you get what I'm saying. So the point here is Paul is speaking about Gentiles who are unbelievers and yet have a moral code that just serves to testify to the fact that God has given everyone a, a moral sense. It's related to the census divinitatis, the God sense that John Calvin talks about. So I do believe he's talking about unbelievers there. Are there any other questions? <laughs> that was a rambling response, but I, I got to... Uh, take a little more time with it because we didn't have any other questions come in. So I've been going now for about 45 minutes and I'm more than happy to wrap this up. But if you have any more questions, I'll I'll take my time wrapping up here and you can feel free to share them in the comment section below. Any question about the, the Christian worldview, the biblical message, evangelism, how to effectively share the gospel or um, defend the Christian faith. Um, James, buddy, I hope that was a satisfactory answer. Um, do you agree or disagree? Let me know in the in the comments. But I'm going to wait for a few more comments to come in here. And um, let me just give you a quick update as to some things going on around the Think Institute and, and uh, with the Think Podcast. So first of all, I'm going to be giving away the, first of all, the, the book giveaway drawing is officially closed. That doesn't mean you can't still leave a five-star rating and review, but I had to draw the line somewhere. And so thank you to everyone who so far has given a five-star rating and review um, to the, the Think Podcast. And um, okay, we're getting a few more questions coming in. The, the contest is closed, but um, I would still very much appreciate an honest five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, which commends us to listeners, future listeners, who really aren't sure if they should give us a listen. What it also does is it connects you, it connects listeners to other like-minded podcasts because on the bottom of the Apple Podcast page, it you go down, scroll down to the bottom, and it says similar podcasts, or you may also like, and there are other related podcasts there. And there's some very, very good ones that are down there. All right, so James Whitworth has asked another couple of questions. I'll try to hit these a little quicker. So the work of the law written in the heart in Romans 2.15 is different than the law written on the heart in Jeremiah 31.33. Yes, that's correct. Uh, in Jeremiah 31.33, so hopefully you've seen Hopefully I've established that the work of the law, not the law itself, but the work of the law, in other words, the good deeds required by the law, similar to the law, in accordance with the law, bound up with the law, but not the law itself, is written on the hearts of unbelievers. Hopefully I've established that. But in Jeremiah 31, 33, which is the famous passage in which God talks about the, um, the new covenant, one of the famous, famous passages. Here's what he says. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, 
This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, although I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will each, no longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Man, I love that passage. So here you have the Lord predicting, prophesying, and promising a new covenant. And he's speaking here about the house of Israel. But what we find out in Romans 9 through 11, in that whole section there, it, it is uh, the, the true member of Israel is not the one who is ethnically Israel, but the one who has the same faith as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, really as, as Abraham. But by extension, Abraham, uh, Isaac and Jacob are included in that. And that is the saving faith that is in the Messiah. Abraham, Jesus said, Abraham looked forward to his day and, rejo and rejoiced. In other words, Abraham, actually in Hebrews 11, it makes a similar point that Abraham believed that God could raise the dead. And therefore, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. Spoiler alert, he doesn't actually go through with it because God tells him not to. You can read about that in Genesis uh, 12 through 15. No, it's later than that. It's, it's in Genesis. Read Genesis. Great book. But here's the point. God is making a promise to the house of Israel that is later going to be expanded to all God's people in the church through Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says later that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. So here you've got a promise of God that is yes in Christ Jesus, meaning if you're in Christ Jesus, this is a promise that is for you. And here the, the covenant that God is going to make in verse 33, this is the covenant I will make. I will put my teaching within them. My, I, I don't know if the Hebrew word there is Torah. Maybe somebody can look that up. But I will put my law within their hearts. Well, what else is the Holy Spirit doing in our hearts if he's not guiding us and teaching us? I was just talking with my wife about this last night. Um, uh, she was talking about uh, actually a G.K. Chesterton passage by way of her favorite podcast. They were discussing G.K. Chesterton. Uh, that podcast is called Mama Bear Apologetics. And on that podcast, they were talking about how Chesterton talks about how when the Holy Spirit has now come, we are no longer in the in the same kind of situation that that Israel was in under the old covenant. Israel needed an external law because the Holy Spirit was not indwelling their hearts. And this is a big debate even among new covenant theologians like myself or like like uh, brother James Whitworth. Did old covenant believers have the Holy Spirit? I personally do not believe that they did because Pentecost hadn't happened yet. And Pentecost was a, was a new thing. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. And when the Holy Spirit came, he, he teaches us internally and guides us internally and puts the, it's a, it's a, it's a law that is written on our hearts. This is why in Ezekiel 36, it says, God says, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that a beautiful poetic way of saying the law that guides you, your your heart is the seat of your will, right? So, and your intention and your emotions and your thinking. 
biblically speaking. So your heart is no longer going to be written on stone. Your law guiding you is no longer going to be written on stone. Instead, it's going to be flesh living within you. Jesus said that he would give living water that would well up within you. Okay, as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit who is the source and the fountain of that living water dwelling up within you and guiding you. And, and so Christians actually have the law and the control of the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, living within us. Now, that's a different thing than the general moral sense, the work of the law, what Paul calls the conscience or the conflicting thoughts, that is on everyone's heart that, that everyone has, Jew, Gentile, Christian, or non-Christian. So two, two separate realities there. One is the work of the law. The other is the teaching that God puts on our hearts as members of the new covenant. I wonder if that makes sense. I hope it does. Um, the last question that has come in here, maybe this will be the last one of the day. James Whitworth says, why should we see the law as a unit, not threefold? James, you're giving me some NCT bait here, man. This is red meat for new covenant theology. Why should we see it as a law? Because the Bible presents it. Why should we see it as a unit? Because the Bible presents it as a unit. I still remember being in biblical theology with D.A. Carson, Dr. Carson, and I, I was speaking with him about this very subject, and his answer was brilliant. What he said was that to Israel, the idea of breaking up the moral law sorry, breaking up the law of Moses into three different categories, civil, ceremonial, and moral, would have been crazy. I don't think he said crazy, but I'm saying crazy. Because it was all moral. It's not like the Ten Commandments more closely reflect the intention of God or the heart of God than the law about, you know, that infamous law about not eating shellfish or the proscriptions against bestiality or homosexuality or man-stealing, you know, kidnapping and enslavement. It's all God's heart and intention expressed in the law. Let me go ahead and put the comment up here. Okay. So now, does that mean that we can't recognize distinctions in the law? No, of course not. Certainly we can rec represent different spheres of authority to which the law applies. There is the civil sphere of authority. There's the religious sphere of authority and influence. There is the uh, personal, let's see, civil, religious. Yeah, there's the personal. You know, there's there's the law that, that guides, uh, the, you know, fathers in the home and parents. And, and um, we can recognize these distinctions, but to try, here's, here's the problem. People who want to divide the law not recognize distinctions, but to, to divide the law into three. What they want to do is they want to put up a, a, a break between two-thirds of the law, the civil and the ceremonial. And they want to say that that's been done away with, but the moral law, which they identify as being the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that is still in existence today. The problem with that is that, that um, there's two problems right away. And that is, first of all, 
that that improperly understands how Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus did say, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All that's saying, though, is that I didn't come to cancel and nullify the law. Instead, I'm taking the law, I'm fulfilling it by obeying it, and I am putting it to rest, fulfilling it. And that doesn't, in, in Romans 2 or 3, it says, do we therefore nullify the, the law? No, we uphold it. Well, Jesus upheld the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't abrogate the law. Instead, he fulfilled the law by saying the law is so important that it will stand as your con uh, as your condemnation until I can put it out of the way, out of the picture. The law is important. It's all important. And I mean, meaning every commandment is important. So Jesus had to fulfill all of it, and he did fulfill all of it, all of it, and he put it to rest. And now Jesus, as the truer and better Moses, according to Hebrews, he, uh, Moses being an item in the house, Jesus being the one who built the house, according to Hebrews, Jesus is our new lawgiver. So now, when Jesus gives us our new law, look at Romans, uh, look at Matthew chapter 5 through 7, for example, for example. It really does seem to parallel an awful lot of the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Of course it does. Because it's still the same God. It's still, he's still, he's still Yahweh. He's still the Lord. He's not just going to come up with some, you know, some entirely new paradigm. Instead, what he's going to do is he's going to give us a law that now for the new covenant is better suited to those of us who have the Holy Spirit living within us. Um, rather than these external commands, which were primarily designed to set up a wall, a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile to keep the Jewish people pure, the Israelites pure. And so if a Gentile wanted to come into God's covenant people, more often than not, he would have to become a proselyte. He would have to become a, a convert into Judaism. Today, according to Ephesians, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. It's been torn down. The law has been torn down. And now we enter through the Messiah, through, through Jesus Christ. And those of us who have the same faith as Abraham, we have entered into that covenant community. And um, the whole law is still fulfilled. And now we submit ourselves to the law of Christ, which is very similar to the law of Moses, but it's internal. It's actually deeper. It's actually higher and more broad and more vast than the law that was given to Moses. And... And, okay, so then the other problem, the other problem with those who want to say that there is a tripartite dis, uh, division in the law rather than distinctions is, is this. They're not actually doing that. And I've got plenty of love, nothing but love, for my covenant theology holding brothers and sisters in Christ. The problem is they're not keeping Sabbath on Saturday. They're not. They're, they've moved the Sabbath to Sunday. And I know the arguments about, you know, how the Sunday is the Lord's day. I'm I'm good with Sunday being the Lord's day. I don't think you can explicitly make that case from scripture, but okay, that's fine. Tradition does factor in here and I'm good with Sunday being the Lord's day. But it's not the Sabbath. In Christ, we do have a Sabbath and that Sabbath is Christ himself. We rest from our works in the same way that Israel or I should say in a truer and better way that, that than Israel rested from their work 
on the Sabbath. We rest from our works, um, re resting in the fact that Jesus Christ worked for us, did all the work that's necessary to get us into the kingdom of God. Um, and then one more thing to consider is that James says whoever is guilty of breaking one of the laws has uh, is guilty of breaking them all. And if you can find that passage, uh, to, 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 okay, well, I can't find it now, but if you find that passage in James, leave it in the comments, please. But uh, James does make that point that if you, whoever's guilty of breaking one law has broken the whole thing. In other words, we all stand under condemnation before God. We're never going to be made right with God, and we're never going to be, I'm going to go ahead and say it, we're not going to be sanctified by keeping the Mosaic law, because what God calls us to is truer, better, bigger, higher, deeper, wider, more broad, more internal, and, and uh, more powerful than the law of Moses. All right, last and final question. Here we go. What role did the Spirit play in Old Testament saints? Ah, well, we do see the Holy Spirit coming in a special dis dispensation. Uh, don't get triggered. I'm not preaching dispensationalism in terms of eschatology or whole Bible hermeneutic right now. I'm just saying dispensation meaning a, a, a dispensing. Uh, ah, good. Thank you, James 2.10. James 2.10. Thank you, James. It was, it was James 2.10. James Whitworth, thank you. James 2.10 is the passage. So in the, in the Old Testament, it's very interesting to see how the Holy Spirit will come upon a leader such as David or King Saul before him, or Bezalel, I believe, who was the, the, um, the director of the arts, the director of worship arts for ancient Israel, who designed the artifacts that would go into the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit would come in special dispensation on um, certain people to help them fulfill their calling that God had given them. And actually, the most prominent uh, uh, the most prominent example of this is Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus preached, so earlier in that, that passage that I read, Jesus, when he's preaching in the, in the uh, synagogue, he says that the Holy Spirit has come upon him for the purpose of preaching the, the gospel? Well, when did the Holy Spirit come on Jesus? At his baptism. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, and, and you could say that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, thereby, so many things happened and, and are signified by that. Jesus was the anointed one, is the anointed one, and, and in the old days, the king or the the priest would have his head anointed with oil, signifying the, the presence and the blessing of, of God and God's Holy Spirit and, and God's favor on his mission. So Jesus is the anointed one. He received the Holy Spirit first, and Jesus then gives the Holy Spirit to new covenant believers at Pentecost. It is then continually given to every believer when they believe and, and uh, when they trust in, repent, Trust in Jesus, repent of their sins, and uh, become a Christian. So we we all receive the Holy Spirit now when we receive Christ. But in the Old Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit 
the Holy Spirit was um, was active, and and he would come upon leaders and uh, judges. Uh, Samson, take Samson's a great example. The Holy Spirit would come upon Samson, giving him supernatural strength to win these incredible battles. Samson was, you know, I mean, Samson was was a wild man. You know, Samson was was reckless, rowdy, sinful. But when it was time for him to accomplish his purpose, the Holy Spirit would come upon him and he would start thrashing the Philistines in supernatural ways. So the Holy Spirit was doing something there. He was liberating God's people. Today, the incredible thing about all of this is that today we all have the Holy Spirit. All believers, not non-believers, but we all do. It's a gift that that is given to us by the Father and the Son, uh, given to all believers. He is a gift. Um, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force, but a, uh, a personal person. So, that looks like all the questions that we have. This was a lot of fun, man. This was um, this was this was invigorating. It's, it's exhausting, but thankfully I had my coffee in uh, in my mug that my daughter gave me. If you can see that on the video right there, my daughter gave me this mug years ago, and I still love it. It's wonderful. I've got other mugs, but that's a good one. This is uh, this has been an Ask Me Anything version. Very very live. Very. Um, most of it was, or at least half of it was unscripted, unplanned. And if you enjoyed it, maybe we'll do it again. Let me know. Drop a comment. If this, if you thought this was, you know, good stuff, <laughs> uh, if you thought it was encouraging or, um, educational for you, man, praise the Lord. I'm just trying to teach you what God's word says. I'm not coming up with anything myself or giving you my own opinion. Hopefully you enjoyed this though. Hopefully it was faithful to God's word, but test Everything that I say, by God's word, make sure that it's it's true and accurate. All right. Uh, engage with the Think Institute. Get connected with us by simply going to thethink.institute. Check out our new courses library right there on the website. Connect with us on all the social media platforms. Um, and until next time. Ah, oh, wait, I forgot to say. This is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. I truly hope that you got something today that you can put into practice over the next week. And that's all I have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think. <laughs>